This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. I'm Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. Stinky Lulu Says is an emphatically informal and conversational audio diary that aims to capture some of my thoughts about the show I see, with an occasional dash of commentary about current trends and crises in contemporary theater making. Because after a pandemic-inspired pedagogical pivot taken by the podcast in cycles 2, 3, and 4, I now find myself again seeing a lot of shows and craving some kind of mechanism to catch and to share my thoughts about what I see, without, that is, giving myself additional writing to do. But please understand, my comments here on Stinky Lulu Says should not be mistaken for reviews in any conventional sense, but rather, what you'll hear is simply my reflective commentary on the works that shaped my experience of the past week or two or three. So, each episode, which arrives to your podcasting service whenever it arrives, will bring a spontaneous, mostly unedited, reflective discussion about a recent theater production. Sometimes it might capture a conversation among a lightly curated group of friends or colleagues, but mostly it's just me talking to myself uh, as I gather, as I collect, as I capture my thoughts about my recent theater-going experiences. And in this installment, after a quick overview of the handful of shows I've seen since the new year, I reflect at some length on my experience of the quote, world premiere immersive theatrical staging of The Ways of White Folks by Langston Hughes, a 1934 short story collection that also happens to be one of my all-time favorite and most reread books. So, here we go. In the three weeks since the new year began, I've only engaged five shows a mildly notorious revisal of a major U.S. Broadway musical, one of the year's most controversial new plays, a mini-festival of funny, strange, and provocative new works, a hilariously haunting drag cabaret show, and an immersive site-specific theatrical adaptation of a remarkable collection of short stories. So as I do my thing and consider the thematic and formal questions that swirl and twirl through these very different theatrical ventures, I, I note that all are about in some ways and all aim toward very different things. I'm struck that each of them seem to operate from a somewhat different premise of what we, as in we the audience, might seek from the theatrical encounter. But to um, begin to elaborate, the shows were, in the order I saw them, I saw the Jeffrey L. Page and Deanna Paul a revisal of um, 1776, the musical, as presented on Broadway by the Roundabout Theatre Company. This was my second time seeing that show. Bruce, I also saw that uh, Bruce Norris's Downstate, as directed by Pam McKinnon and presented off-Broadway at New York City's Playwrights Horizons. So there we have a full Broadway musical, there we have a full-length uh, major new work, and then I also saw a collection of three new one-act plays to stage in a workshop setting by three emerging directors as part of Club Thumb's 2023 Winter Works Festival, which was presented... Uh, 
off off Broadway in New York City. And then I also saw Salty Brine's drag cabaret mashup of a poke indie post-punk indie pop album with a canonical gothic novel in Big Mouth Strikes Again, which was presented as part of the Under the Radar Festival at Joe's Pub in New York City. And then finally, uh, the show that I'll talk about in some length in the second half of the episode, I saw the original immersive theatrical staging of The Ways of White Folks by Lansing Hughes, which was a co-presentation by two Philadelphia theater companies, Egopo and a theater in the X. So what I'll do now is discuss the first four somewhat briefly or as brief as I ever do. So to begin with 1776, I mentioned that I had seen 1776 relatively early in its run. Indeed, um, one of the things that was notable about this, I saw it like in the first few weeks of its run, and then also in the last week of its run uh, on Broadway. And it was an interesting experience because in between, uh, this was the production of the musical 1776, which was, which is, um, a musical from 1968-69, which reflects upon the the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, the whole suspense of the show is, will these guys, all guys, will they sign the Declaration of Independence? And of course, we know the answer to that. So one of the accomplishments of the musical is how they stage the suspense of that in terms of the drama of politicking, the drama of of deep uh, divisions, the question uh, reminding us that it was never inevitable that the Declaration of Independence would be signed, introducing us to names um, that we may not know as well alongside names that we do. And with a series of songs, which are not necessarily conventional musical theater songs and that they don't always drive the action. Instead, in some ways, the songs sort of drop into emotional or uh, intellectual or sort of questions. They sort of ponder through questions. And so uh, in some ways, it's a little bit more like a kind, it's not a conventional musical in any way. And this production, uh, which had its origins at ART uh, some while ago, in IART in Boston some while, while ago, took the perhaps novel, perhaps not, um, notion of what happens if we cast this mostly male ensemble. There's two um, female identified characters but the bulk of the who are both wives in relation to central men in the story um uh but the other 20 or so characters are all men and all white and so what happens if we the production asks the question what happens if we take an ensemble of all um women trans or non-binary performers and who uh to take on these roles and to occupy the stage and these characters in this setting and this this setting in this scenario in the story and um so early on i saw this uh, I took some students and we saw it, uh, and it was an interesting example of how the question of a casting conceit um, can do some work, but not all the work, because of course the fundamental work of any show is the story being told, and the way that story is being told is a story that is fifty plus years old, was controversial, but also quite successful in its time. But also, so so what our first wrangling uh, I noticed with my students, at least, was that um, there was some question about whether or not the casting conceit did everything that the production wanted it to do. And then some question about what about this show? What's going on with this show? And so what I knew was I was knew I had to go in and see a show later that night. So I was looking to fill in the gap. And so I thought, well, 1776 was available in affordable ticketing, ticketing out uh, context. And so... 
I thought maybe I'll go see it again and look at it again and see what I see about the casting conceit. Having had the in between the some of you might be aware of the notorious interview with Sarah Porkalob, who um as a cast member of the show who actually spoke in a way that is very unconventional in Broadway Broadway and conventional theater publicity circles where she spoke out offering her critiques of the show that she was in at the time. And so uh so it was an so there's been a lot that's happened around the show. The show did not get great reviews. It was emphatically mixed reviews, um, appraising certain performances, questioning the conceit, all these things. Uh, so the show but had a run at roundabout. So it had a guaranteed number of show, uh, performances in some ways. It had a sort of a scheduled limited run. And so I decided to see it in the final week. And one of the things that was interesting about the interesting occasion of that was that uh, a few things had happened in between. And indeed, like um, the central uh, character of John Adams was being played by a different performer. Crystal and Lloyd took over. Uh, and then also uh, the other the three central characters, arguably, are the characters of John Adams, Thomas Jefferson and uh, Benjamin Frank Franklin. And in all three of those instances, in the second time I saw them, saw the show, uh, those roles were being performed by different performers. And so it gave me a real chance to get a sense to see of like, what is it like in this terms of this casting conceit, especially as this tour, as the show goes on tour, um, what is the way in which this, the sturdiness of this conceit, what does it continue to open up, even if it's not necessarily the, you know, what, what often what I enjoy about going to the theater the second time is what is a rewatch reveal, especially in a Broadway context when you will see the show again, but it'll be a different body in the role. In this case, for example, I'm neglect I neglected to prepare to remind myself of who the actor was who played Thomas Jefferson when I first saw the show, but she was visibly pregnant at the time, which opened up interesting questions about the body on stage. And it did not have any real resonance or meaning in relation to uh, the Thomas Jefferson character. They didn't make anything out of it, but it did open up just, just as there is ways in which the bodies of these performers were asked to notice them as, as opposed to asking them, which I think was the original conceit of the show of asking the bodies of the performers to disappear under the guise of the character to sort of become and sort of become a sorry, an effigy of Ben Franklin and look like Ben Franklin and, and just sort of become Ben Franklin. In this case, we have the characters operating, but we're always playing with that dialectical tension between the body of the performer and the role that they're playing. And I think that in some ways, these questions of embodiment and being able to see different actors play these parts um, was a very interesting revisit. It didn't necessarily resolve my uh, my the question of whether or not this was a truly successful revisitation or revisal of this piece. I had always been, I'd been for a number of years very curious about this piece, and I've written about the written about it briefly and and. In some ways, I think what was interesting is at the end of the second time going through it, I'm sort of burned through my interest of 1776. I'm done. I don't need to think about it anymore. But I do think that this production allowed me to do that. And it also did the thing that you'll hear me talk about, if you hear me talk at all, is it also gave showcase to an extraordinary ensemble of, of performers who were enabled by doing this kind of surrogation of playing all these dudes, um, of being able to do different things. Uh, do things that often the commercial theater doesn't allow the allow 
performers of these demographics to do, to be a lead, to hold a stage, to sort of do these kind of songs that are not about intimate relationships with men, you know, all these kinds of things. So it was, a, it's, it was exciting and thrilling to watch these performers being able to sort of unleash um, without the burden of representation, you know, so in some ways they're not actually worried, what is this saying about me, like uh, me playing a black character, like what does this say about blackness, like this is a black actor playing a white character. So there's no real question there, but it does do activate a different possibility. So for me, it did, it did remind us of what was some, sometimes what is the, what is the potential in non-traditional casting is that it can activate the legibility of skills and the legibility of skills, especially in a commercial theater context of, of, um, um, performers from uh, demographic backgrounds that may not have access to as many roles or opportunities in this kind of visibility. But um, it was a worthy revisit. It was a worthy revisit. And uh, it. I'm interested to see if the tour continues to stir conversation and controversy the way even though the Broadway presentation wasn't as hugely successful, it did continually like seem to recur in conversation. It seemed to spark periodically moments of interest in conversation. So as, as this show in this performance continues, especially in this moment where drag is newly controversial, I do think this production traveling around might be an interesting flashpoint to keep watching on, in which case my interest in 76 may actually persist. So, um, Moving on to the next show. Oh, one other thing I should mention in uh, uh, the in between the time I saw the show in previews and when I returned, the company had um, uh, some organization within the company with the cast members had asked for um, an insert to go into the programs, which is titled "A Note About Pronouns and Gender at 1776," which is a really interesting insert that should be accessible if you're interested. Just search for it online, where it um, talks about what the production describes as their gender expansive uh, approach to casting, and it introduces uh, discussions um, in a applicable context of like gender identity versus cisgender. You know. So terms and give some terms for the audience to understand why pronouns are there and what's going on. And so I again, I think this tool, uh, this production is an interesting spark for a variety of different things. And this resource that the company insisted that the production include in the program as an insert is, uh, is again, one of the interesting sort of traces that I think this production will leave behind even as it moves ahead. So the next show I saw, I uh, saw the same day, um, and it was a show that I had tried to see twice before, but things had always gotten in the way. Um, uh, one, an error of my arriving to the theater at the wrong time, another time when the theater had gotten my ticketing wrong, and then finally I, things all aligned and I was able to go see the also um, sort of curiously sort of flashpoint show, um, uh, Bruce Norris's Downstate, uh, a show that some of you might have been aware of, um, got sort of a bit of weird attention when Ted Cruz uh, sort of retweeted a post, um, retweeted the, a praiseful review in the New York Times, which mentioned the scenario of the play, which is a sort of the play is set in a halfway house or a safe or a house that uh, where sex were recently released sex offenders um, can live. So it's one of those houses where, where, everybody where it's kind of a halfway house because there's not a lot of places where these guys can live. They're on parole. They're not, they're registered in the registry and all of this, but, and so it takes this scenario 
and puts it on a stage and sort of opens up sort of these interesting questions about what is the question of rehabilitation, what is the question of justice, whose justice uh, um, does a prison serve, a prison sentence sort of serve as closure or red or uh, punishment um, in meaningful ways for those affected by the crimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a play that is about this scenario and it's a good, and Peter Marks of the Washington Post said, this is a good play. It happens to be about pedophilia. And of course, in the discourse world in which we live, Ted Cruz picked up that tweet and said, look, the Washington Post is praising pedophilia. And then it caused this stir, caused Peter Marks, the critic of the Washington Post, having to shut down his Twitter account. It was one of those very 2020s kind of situations. But in the possibly in the world of no publicity is bad publicity, the show ended up extending a couple times, which actually allowed me to see it, um, which was uh, maybe not a couple times, but it did extend and I was able to see it. And it was, it was an interesting set very realistically. There are, um, it's, it's uh, Bruce Norris, who's perhaps best known for Clyburn Park, uh, but is known for a kind of um, big ideas played out in, uh, in sort of relatable theatrical settings. So it's like playing with big ideas about society, big ideas about what is the consequence of theatrical of action, what can theater what is theater as a space for a space for ideas and conflict when we see these ideas and these different stances or approaches or um, capacities and incapacities embodied in characters on stage. And so um, you know, always with a measure of sort of very complicated humor, but also complicated empathy. So the play operates in this space where we are invited to negotiate our own response to having to pay attention to these four guys who are all, as we come to understand the particulars of their crimes, uh, or and I'm calling them crimes, but the the actions that got them incarcerated and placed them in the situation in this house that they are with the constraints that they have, um, we come to understand them and have to reconcile that with our first reactions to them as humans that we'd encountered without that information. So in some ways, I think that that's a big part of what the piece is about, which is about um, what what do we do with our own reactions to sort of a human and what do we do with our reactions to additional information about them. Within this, there are also um, uh, the inciting incident that continues to reverberate and continues to be an inciting incident because it keeps happening is this one guy, uh, his character Andy comes comes to the house in order to confront and affect a kind of an extra juridic- extrajudicial sort of uh, ritual of uh, retribution. I don't know. I don't know what the language would be, but just sort of a kind of an adjudication. Uh, and uh, he's the survivor of a sexual assault by one of the characters in the play. And he wants this, the person who assaulted him to uh, admit his crimes in a, according to a particular script that he is, um, he's learned through a therapist or a group program and is coming with his wife to do this thing. And what we see is how complicated uh, it just becomes very complicated very quickly. It's a play. And, um, 
and things spool out. There are other characters in there. There's all kinds of ways in which the characters are very dependent upon each other even and have certain constraints. They have their roommates. They don't always know each other or like each other. The house is run by a church, so that but not very well run, not very well maintained. And there's lots of sort of ways in which the, the house is constantly uh, uh, the, the target of um, harassment and vandalism. And so there's just this constant th thrum of, of, there's this constant thrum of threat that is going on, just this low, low grade instability that all these guys who live in this house come in. And of course, there's four other characters. There's this Andy and his wife. There's also the parole officer. And then there's a coworker of one of the, one of the residents of the home. And so the play, um, is really well constructed. It's it's really remarkably constructed. I suspect the play will have a kind of life either in classrooms, possibly in community theaters. I don't know. I mean, I think its topic will remain a little bit inflammatory, but it's very well structured. And there includes, there's what's one of the most interesting features of the response. There's this sort of twist that happens in the, um, in the end where like, there's a couple things that are going that you can sometimes Audience members have been very surprised by some of these twists. Other audiences seem to have groused by they could see this happening a mile away. But there is a kind of, it's effective. It's a device that works really effectively in terms of creating this house becoming a bit of a kind of a pot that's about to explode and boil over and it slowly builds and so there's this kind of incremental tension of what's going to happen something bad's going to happen what's going to happen something bad's going to happen what's going to happen and when something bad does happen it does what plays often do is we see that the world of the play will continue even after all these things have changed and and I think that opens up some interesting questions about the cycle of judicial, uh, the cycle of our judicial structures, the ways in which things change, but nothing really changes and think bad things happen and then things move on. And so it was an interesting play. I'm glad I finally saw it. It was, um, and it was, it was a play again, I almost missed, but I'm glad that I was able to finally couldn't figure the situation to see it. Um, uh, the next roster thing on the roster was um, happened just this week. Uh, I saw both 1776 and Downstate right at the beginning of the first week of the new year. Took a week away from the theater the following week, but then this week I had a blast of seeing three shows. So one was a show that had three shows, um, Club Thumb's Winter Works, which is a program. I shouldn't mention that I'm on the board of Club Thumb, but I've also been a longtime fan of Club Thumb. And Club Th I've never attended Winter Works. Winter Works is the companion festival to Summer Works, the more high-profile Club Thumb presentation where they do full-length uh, full length shows, um, 75 minutes or 80 minutes, um, in concentrated sort of low resource but high creativity uh, productions over which have about a run of 10 days each that happen in the summer. And those are always remarkable. I highly endorse summer works as a thing to do because you 75 minutes and it's always funny. It's always strange, always provocative. That's their tagline. And even if you don't really get it or if it doesn't to totally work, it was a worthy thing to do for an hour and a half. Uh, winter works takes, uh, summer works focuses on amp on, on sort of introducing writers to the broader, uh, theatrical orbit and, uh, club thumbs work is really focused on, on, uh, the new American play and, uh, nurturing and nurturing and developing emerging writers. 
That's not out of the picture at Winterworks, but at Winterworks, they also have, a, the program was devised mostly to sort of create a space so that emerging directors have a chance to have their work seen, also have a chance to have work with uh, professional actors, work in a concentrated setting, but also without the burdens of full production design or, produ you know, and so there's a lot of things that are, it's, um, the festival has presented three one-act plays, about 35 minutes each, um, that are presented in a uh, quick repertoire, repertory where you, and uh, in just a classroom, like their classroom spaces at NYU, where you go from one acting studio where things are configured in a certain way, you walk down the hall, sit down again, it's another acting studio configured in a different way, and then you walk down the hall another way, and it's like a different acting studio. So three different acting studios in which these plays occur, and you just go with only the walking between the spaces as the intermission between the three shows. And the three shows were Button Like Button Like Band Camp by Elijah Guo, directed by Kidian Kyohan, Reply All by Jana uh, Farron Smith, directed by Namuna Sise, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong. And then Coach Coach by Bailey Williams, directed by Dara Molina. They were each very funny, each very intriguing in their dramatic scenario, and uh each were uh were vivid, were really vivid. Um, Button Lake Band Camp was, as you might say, it sort of deals with the kind of kids at band camp and these sort of questions of hierarchy and power and self-actualization within the stricture and the confines. And it, and it sort of built around one character sort of hitting a moment of crisis about who does she think she is. But it also introduces hilarious elements of the supernatural, all in the space that the heightened reality of being 14 years old. Reply All um, deals with office politics, especially office politics politics as mediated by uh, sort of email threads or Slack channels as the primary mechanism of communication. And so it's this kind of meta commentary of these characters operating in real time, trying to get, get through the week while also preparing for the boss's birthday, while also having interior internal conflicts about um, hierarchy and status within the workplace. And then finally, Coach Coach is a collection of, of women, uh, uh, life coaches who are gathering for a coaching certification course and uh, the heightened realities that come in there. And so I loved Coach Coach so much by Bailey Williams, Dara Molina. If you see anything about this play coming back or if you see anything directed by Dara Molina, um, uh, grab your tickets. It was really next level uh, interesting. And this is the potential extraordinary cast, um, just really exciting. All three shows were really fascinating, but and Coach Coach was the one that just really plinked all my playingers and I want to see more. And then um, the fourth uh, show was just uh, was the only piece of Under the Radar that I will have encountered. Under the Radar is a major festival in New York City in January, which uh, introduces in limited runs a variety of mostly experimental works all over the city. Uh, it's sponsored by, uh, and there's a number of other festivals going on this month, but um, that's not really my life living commuting to see shows doesn't really support my really immersion in any of the theaters. But, um, one of my, uh, friends and former students, um, uh, a guy named Gilbert Sanchez who performs under the persona of Ms. Ms. Zilbert as a cabaret performer, um, alerted me to the wonder of Salty Brine, a performer, uh, that, uh, Gilbert sort of points to as one of the good, one of the key inspirations alongside somebody like Taylor Mack or Justin Vivian Bond of just doing a kind of next level mode of drag cabaret performance and sort of feels and sort of feels as rooted in the 90s as it does in the contemporary moment. And what Salty Brine's conceit is, is he, um, the persona 
whoever he is, um, I don't know. There's actually a working actor, and I don't know his name, but so what's the salty brine conceit is he has these this series called the um living record collection where uh the playlist draws from either an actual album typically an actual album by a known artist in this case it was the smith's album the queen is dead and puts that in tension with talking about some kind of literary text in this case it was mary shelley's gothic novel frankenstein and then in the in-between, we hear a lot about Salty and Salty's own upbringing and how he uh, sort of how the both the music and the novel uh, activate understanding, activate experiences or memories or who Salty is, all these kind of stuff. So it's a little bit autobiographical in between as Salty is singing the songs of the Smith's Queen is Dead and also telling us the story of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So it's this really fascinating melange uh, that t- takes place over about 75 minutes or an hour and a half where we we're, we travel through the whole album, we travel through the whole novel, and we travel through through uh, Salty Brine's life. And in this case, with the combination of the indie, pop, post-punk melancholia of the Smiths combining with the inaugural sort of genius of Mary Shelley's gothic novel Frankenstein, it really goes to this space of who deserves to be loved and the vulnerability and the, the sensation of feeling monstrous. Because if you know the novel, you know that the empathy lives in the monster. And so it's, uh, and the sort of the creation, somebody who's been created by a society that has no place for them and only sees them as monstrous. And so their capacity to have a heart, to have love has no place to go. And in some ways that opens up a really interesting space for Salty Brine to create a space about does it mean to sort of come of age of queerness, to find expression, to sort of find this question of what will there ever be somebody to love me? All these kind of things. And so it was in a stunning swirl of uh, artistry and genius. And as uh, some of the buzz uh, around Salty Brine will say is once you see one, one, uh, installment in the living record collection, you're ready to go back. And I say, that's absolutely the case. I want to see another one. I can't wait to see another one. It is, um, Salty Brian is the darling of the downtown cabaret season for a reason. And I'm so grateful that Ms. Zilbert or Gilbert alerted me to the wonder that is Salty Brine because I am hooked. And this was exactly my kind of jam. What I will say is if you're I did note that the whole performance that I was at happens to be playing right now on the YouTube channel of the of Joe's Pub. So I don't know how long it'll be up there, but if it, but if if you can grab it while it is, you might enjoy it. Get a sense of the magic, the wonder, the marvel, the mastery, the artistry, the weirdness, the wonder of Salty Brine. Um, so that's it. I'm going to take a quick pause and we'll come back and I'll dive deep into my experience of the ways of white folk as in its inaugural theatrical staging from uh, two theater companies collaborating in Philly. But just a quick pause, and I'll be back for that. So the show that I expected, I fully expected coming into this, even though I hadn't seen it until yesterday, I was like, this podcast, I'm going to end up talking about the ways of white folks. And um, surprise, surprise, this is the one. I could have gone deeper on uh, Winterworks or I could have gone deeper on Salty Brine, but I had a feeling that um, the ways of white folks would capture my imagination, and it did. Now, I went into this production uh, a bit uh, 
wary and enthusiastic at the same time. What I will say is Egopo is a, <clears throat> a company that's been based, um, that's been around since the early 90s, but has been based in Philly for the last 15 years. And it seems to be the, pro the, the sort of the brainchild of a, um, the brainchild of a guy named, uh, God, what is his name? Lane, Sa Lane Sabadov, um, uh, who has been guiding, um, who's the artistic director of Egopo. And what their, their mission seems to be, as I, best as I can tell, um, and I, again, I've received emails from them a lot, and they are a company that is really dedicated to sort of taking innovative approaches, often immersive, immersive meaning that they are set in, in uh, set in spaces outside of conventional theater spaces, or perhaps in theatrical settings in which there's a, a measure of surround or audience interaction. And as we're looking at their Philadelphia theater history, their Philadelphia season history, they've picked themes, like sometimes playwrights like John Guare or, or um, Henrik Ibsen, but then also sometimes like... Uh, regions like South Africa, Jewish theater, Russian masters, um, but also theater cruelty, you know, and then it seems recently they've taken on some other approaches. And this was their Harlem Renaissance season, where they decided to take on the question of the Harlem Renaissance and in so doing needed to develop a collaboration with Theater in the X. Theater in the X is a also a Philly-based company, which was created about 10 years ago to provide the people of West Philly and the African-American community at large the opportunity to see professional quality theater in their own neighborhood um, at no cost. And so these two companies came together for these for their season and the ways of white folk, which it seems to me that this production was was developed at Rowan University where Savadov is on the faculty, but it um, it's a really interesting approach to a uh, to doing this because it's not what I found most interesting about the staging of the ways of white folk is it was not a theatrical adaptation. It was a theatrical staging of this collection of short stories by Langston Hughes from 1934. So it wasn't so much a dramatization, like it wasn't, we didn't see the scenes adapted so that they were characters, but in some ways the dialogue from the stories, as well as the third person narration, was sort of just, was assigned to characters who were embodying, assigned to actors embodying the respective characters. So in one moment you might see a character speak a line and then they then on the other on the other hand you might say so you might see the character of maddie say something like that's not what i'm here to do and then the next moment saying maddie didn't like these people you know was where the same actor will speak about speak in the moment in character but then also might narrate the scene and so what's striking about this is it's an adaptation um more in the tradition in some ways of oral interpretation where you take the text as it's written and find a way to amplify it in through performance so that we can enter into the language in a different way and i found it to be quite remarkable i should note that i don't know that i've read a single book more times than I've read uh, Langston Hughes' The Ways of White Folk. White, white folk. In college, I took a seminar, um, uh, an entire seminar on the works of, life and works of Langston Hughes from uh, the person, one of my college mentors who was at the time, um, he's now unfortunately deceased, but who was at the time the executor of the Langston Hughes estate and was Langston Hughes' assistant during the last years of his life. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, I knew this storybook, and this was, 
I mean, I I love this collection of stories. When I first read it, I think I read it a couple times. I even thought about going upstairs to see if I could find it, my college papers to see if I wrote about it. But I really love this story when I first encountered this collection of stories when I first encountered it. I read it a few times that first year. Uh, it was the first time I ever bought when I for a long time in the 90s, whenever I was in a used bookstore and I saw a copy of it that was affordably priced, I would buy the copy because then I would just give it to somebody. It was just that book for me. It was a book I just gave to a lot of people. And um, I and I read it at the very beginning. I read it the summer of George Floyd. I reread the book. And then I also reread it again this week. So I've read the book at least eight to 10 times. And I don't know if I can say that I've read certain plays that many times, but I don't know if I've read any books of fiction eight to 10 times like I've read this one. And one of the things about, um, I will thoroughly endorse um, The Ways of White Folks as a literary text because I, every time I read it, I have a different experience. Every time I read it, it's, it's, uh, it's um, beautifully written and really emotional and the characters are vivid and powerful, but it's also a kind of polemical book. It's making arguments, it's exploring, it's using the stories to open up intellectual questions and societal questions. And one of the things that's striking is it's 90 years old, but it also feels very contemporary, even though it's really in the period it is of the early 20th century, of really the 20s and 30s, maybe the teens in one or two cases, but it's just deeply in that period. And yet it feels shockingly um, resonant in diff in particular ways as well, like the um, dynamics, the uh, psychodynamics of this question of what the title is about is the ways that white folks respond to blackness. Because that's in some ways what the what the core premise is, is it's sort of documenting from the perspective of an African-American writer, what is the weird ways that white folks respond to what the power of blackness, black culture, black humanity, black spirit, black love, and black community, all these things. And we see, um, in these 14 stories, sort of fascinating accounts, fascinating uh, dives into the question of what are the ways of white folks. And uh, in this theatrical adaptation, a couple of other things about it, it is, uh, so they did eight, I think eight or nine of the 14 stories, and including some of the my favorite stories, the most harrowing story in the book was staged, the, my favorite story in the book, my two favorite stories in the book were staged. Um, uh, but some notable stories were not. Um, then the uh, the so so and and again they were staged. They were they were state they were theatrically staged and were not necessarily dramatized. And uh, the other piece that I think is really useful to note is it was presented at uh, a place called Glen Ford, uh, Ford F O E R D which is a historic mansion and estate overlooking the Delaware River in the far northeastern edge of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, this is like a mansion, a Gilded Age mansion. And it is, uh, in that weird way of historic homes, it sort of survives. It's sort of, sort of falling apart in certain ways and absolutely opulent in others with these extraordinary stained glass skylights, these big wraparound glass enclosed porches, enormous ballrooms, staircases that swoop and swirl, um, just completely in the mode of Northeastern Gilded Age mans mansionry, uh, the Edwardian classical style, because it was first built as a summer home in 1850, and then became uh, expanded by a series of owners in the 1890s and the early and the aughts. 
to become this really quite enormous mansion and estate that remained in private hands until the 1970s when uh, after the after the family, it was family owned until the 1970s. And then when the family, the final surviving member of the family died, it was bequeathed to a church first, and then ultimately the city took it over. And it became a historic house museum with the grounds as a public park. So there's a sitting room, there's a ballroom, there's a sun porch, there's a kitchen, there's a wine cellar. It's just like, it's this big house. And one of the, and it's sort of in this residential neighborhood, it's a weird destination to go to the theater. And I bought my tickets, I didn't know, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't really know that this show was happening. But then I got this random email that said, only two performances remain. And I was like, what is this? And it was like, oh, the ways of white folks, what, what, what? And so suddenly I was like, I, I think I got to go. And uh, thankfully, my partner was up for the adventure. And so we went and um, we drove to this neighborhood in Philly and had no idea where we were going. And suddenly we're going through like sort of nice neighborhood and then warehouse district, then another nice neighborhood, then down single lane roads until we wrap around and we get to this mansion and uh, park in the back and then walk in and are able to walk around the house for a while before the performance begins. And of course, it's set in an immersive setting, staged, I would say, Fefu style because of my bias toward Fournette's. But basically, as you go in, you are given a wristband of a different color. And they had, I believe, seven groups of 14, 14 people who would, um, there are certain points where everybody was in one room together, but otherwise you would travel with your own tour guide going through this, going through the, um, I guess it would be eight scene, eight scenes that would be staged in different parts of the house, including briefly outside. And I should note that I saw a daytime performance, so I'm not sure exactly um, exactly how a nighttime performance would have worked, especially going outside. And I did see that the actor uh, who was guiding us outside had a lamp, which might have been lit at night to sort of illuminate his face. But it was. Um, it was a fascinating series. And one, one thing I should note about the stories is the stories are not set in one location. Some of them are actually set uh, in New Jersey or in this sort of mid-Atlantic mid, mid area. But most are set in New York. Some are in Ohio. There's a couple in, in further south. And... Um, and so it's not like these are one collection of stories. It's not a collection of stories where characters reoccur or settings reoccur. This is scattered around. So in some ways, there's this kind of cognitive space where we have to understand that we're shifting realities, even though we're staying in the same space. And so this cast of 28 or so actors, as well as tour guides who were themselves were performers in the ensemble, um, were moving us through these different worlds in a sequence that would be entirely arbitrary. You know, it's that kind of thing like I would be in, I, I, you know, if I had the opportunity, I might consider seeing it again, but want to be in a different starting point to see what the sequence of the stories would work. But it was um, what I will say, it was a remarkable performance, a remarkable experiment and a remarkably successful one. Uh, you'll um, my understanding is the show sold out almost immediately. Uh, it became sort of a buzzed about hot ticket. Uh, they had activated wait lists. They could, because of the complexity and the size of the cast, they were only able to add one supplemental performance, which sold out within seconds. And so it was a really quite extraordinary success of this, of having this sort of mix of stories, this, this particular approach to um, staging. And of course, what I've come to understand since seeing the show is Glenn Ford, the estate is this, like, it's not 
this is not the first time it's been used for performances. A couple of other theater companies in Philly have stage performances there before. And it is uh, because there's not a lot of furniture. There's these big open hallways. There's these big ballrooms. You can see that it is very amenable to this kind of space. It's also a wedding venue. So I imagine nine months out of the year it's booked with weddings. But then there's a couple winter months or late fall months that might be amenable to sort of hosting uh, to being booked out for a performance so but it was what i will say about the ways of white folk on stage i i think the thing i was most interested by was the theatrical uh, staging approach to it the fact that it was very little and i would be fascinated to see the script here to see how much was actually written um that was not Langston Hughes' language. My guess is about 85%, if not 90 or more percent of the words that we heard were direct lifts from Langston Hughes, repurposed and repackaged in this way. And there were some that were very simple. There's some stories like the story Passing, for example, which is a single monologue written in one person's voice. There's another seri another story called Women and, Ch Women and Child, which is literally a kind of a uh, a dialogue. You can listen to these women talking, but you don't really know who they are, but there's no expository uh, context for it. It's all in dialogue. So there's a couple pieces that are very much um, dialogue-driven pieces. Uh, and so you can just see, like when I when I knew it was going without even looking at it, I said, I know they're doing passing. I wouldn't be surprised if they do woman and child. I, I can't imagine they'll do father and son. Like I had that kind of heat. And I said, there's got to be something rejuvenation through joy because it's such a such an amazing story. Uh, and that rejuvenation through joy, which is a story of a sort of a, uh, most of these stories are set in the Harlem in, in, you know, this is one of the stories that's set very much in the Harlem Renaissance. And it talks about the sort of the, the shyster mode of sort of uh, when uh, sort of black primitivism was sold as a rejuvenating space. And so this kind of this new age spiritual huckster coming in and using black rhythm and black culture and black experience as a way to sort of create a colony of people. But of course, it's all a scam and he's like sleeping with all the women. And that's the story as it goes. And that's in some ways the, the story framing of the experience. As we begin listening to Lesh, we sort of encounter Lesh and his collaborator Saul Bloom as they're in repose. And then we are also, <clears throat> at the very end, we see Saul Lesh, we see Eugene Lesh sort of fall apart. So, and that's the arc of that story, which creates the arc of the evening. In some ways, the evening is conceived as we are all going to Glen Ford is to be part of this colony, but then we have these offshoots out in these other ways. But I will say that one of the things that was really quite extraordinary was, um, <clears throat> The two shows, the two stories that um, I would say, aside from rejuvenation through joy, the story that I think is quite simply a masterpiece is called, it's the very first story in the collection that's called Cora Unashamed. And it is, it's an extraordinary portrait of a, of a black domestic. And it is just so moving and so powerful and so humane and so shocking. And it is performed at as from what was for me the peak uh, point of the production, which it was performed by the co-director, Ontaria Kim Wilson, um, in a kitchen, in a kitchen in uh, sort of the back edge, like sort of behind the main space. You know, it was just sort of like, you just go into the kitchen, you sit down and there's this woman in the kitchen, she's talking to you. And it's Ontario Kim Wilson is the only, is, was just extraordinary performer, 
held this story and it was just it really it was one of the moments where i said oh this is what this show is because i do think one of the things that's worth noting is this is a range a broader diverse uh collection of philadelphia area actors some of them university students at rowan university others are uh seriously working actors in the philadelphia area but only one is equity because it's philadelphia's art equi- eco- ecosystem is like so they may be professional actors but they also have like many day jobs because there's not it's hard to build a career as an actor in philadelphia without doing a million things but that's sort of the great thing about the philadelphia ecosystem is you can do a lot of different things and so this drew an extraordinary array of performers some of whom just really knocked me out with their skill and everybody had incredible presence and commitment and it was uh but it was really um, my favorite story cora unashamed performed by ontaria kim wilson that just uh really sort of underscored the potency of just putting langston hughes's language in the mouths of actors on a stage the other example is the story that i always struggle with the most but it's the month arguably the story that's the most harrowing and most haunting which is um called home which is about a uh a black violinist who leaves town um, first traveling with a minstrel group, but then also then gets to Europe and is able to train and become a quite accomplished um, uh, classical violinist. And uh, he things change and he comes home and he wants to go see his mother. He has a sense that he's very ill and he might be dying. And it becomes sort of a fever dream, which culminates with sort of horrifying violence being perpetrated against, against this character. But in the staging at, at uh, this production, they um, split the interior. The, the, not, the story is written as sort of the fever dream inner monologue <clears throat> of this character as he's sort of vaguely... Um, ill sort of wandering through this sort of trying to make sense and he's he's just sick enough that he can't quite click back into what he's supposed to do as a black man in the u.s after having spent nearly a decade in europe because he's just sick enough where he just doesn't have all his faculties at his disposal and yet he still can be an extraordinary performer on stage and so that that creates a series of events that again sort of lead to harrowing and gruesome consequences but what in this staging what they ended up doing was they split the narrative between three actors. So we see one actor who is just appears to be deathly ill in a bed and two other actors who seem to be at sort of one at full faculty, one sort of becoming ill and one fully ill. But together they create this choral presentation of this story, which again is just stunning and haunting and terrifying. And, uh, and so it, um, I just found that the strategy of bringing this particular writer's work, theatrical staging in in the way that they did, to be astonishingly effective. Of course, I think one of the challenges I always have when you do anything Fefu style, where you're wandering, you get assigned to a group of people. And of course, like one of my least favorite things sometimes about going to the theater is is interacting with other people in the audience. And so it is funny, you end up developing a very strong sense of awareness of these other 14 people because you're constantly moving in, negotiating where you sit, who sits, who stands, all these kind of things in different spaces, and uh, which opens up a different kind of space. And I, I was very much aware that there are only two Black audience members in our group of 14. I was very much uh, aware of the uh, sort of weird dynamics of age and privilege that were playing out in terms of of how it was going on. And then there was other elements too, like they had like, you could buy this like 
drink menu along the way where different rooms you would be served a beverage which opened up these interesting it was interesting strategies of staging and i will say that one of the things that i would offer as my own my own main critique of the piece was the way that the tour guides interacted with the audience was charismatic and wonderful but it also created kind of an odd blurring or odd weirdness at either edge of the performance. Like, do we clap or do we not clap? Because it would often be we'd be in this moment of suspended vulnerability and then out would come this clarion call, okay, now it's time to rise. And so I wondered if there might be a way of doing a chime or a bell or something else to sort of mark the end of the moment. And in one case, uh, there was the we were being introduced to this room and we were in the room that was the story setting for mother of child, mother and child, we were, and as we were introduced, we were saying, now we're going to the meeting of this women's club, which in the story is not revealed until the final moment. We don't know who's who we're listening to until the final moment when they call the meeting to order. And so in some ways it spoiled the ending and it sort of been spoiled in some ways, the pivot that makes the story work. So I think in some ways the I thought the tour guides, the docents, whatever we want to call them, did an extraordinary job of guiding us through and they were charismatic performers all on their own. And yet I wonder if there might have been a slightly different measure of theatrical care guided to sort of marking the transitions and of being very careful of what is the prescripted language entering into the space so that it is set up in ways that let us enter, but also uh, doesn't spoil it or doesn't, um, and it didn't spoil it. It just shifted the reality. It shifted, shifted the point of entrance. And that was the one I noticed in particular. So, um, but again, uh, if the show was going on and I had access to see another performance of it, I might consider it, even though it was nearly three hours, no intermission. Of course, there were the intermission times when you got to walk around, but and when you were walking in between, so it wasn't three hours of concentrated intention, but it was a lift and it was, I would be interested to see it at night to see what the vibe was different, if the vibe was different at night. But um, it was uh, one of the great gifts of my making the active decision this year to prioritize seeing shows in Philly and elsewhere in New Jersey, as well as shows in New York. It was, again, one of the great gifts of encountering a different theatrical ecosystem, getting to know the history of a particular set of companies, uh, getting to see some actors who were not familiar to me, and to get a sense of what is going on. And so uh, it's, again, when you're an active theater goer, uh, it's it's, I'm struck by how easy it is for me to go see shows in New York. I understand how to see shows in New York. Every time I go see a show in Philly, I always have to think a little bit more about what is, how do I enter this? What is this about? And that, and this show in particular was a great opportunity for me to do that. And it was again, an encounter with my, with one of the books that would be on my short list of the books that led to me shelf. Um, because I, I was not surprised that the words of Langston Hughes resonated so powerfully on when spoken by actors on a stage. I was not surprised that it worked. I was surprised at how well it worked, how effective it was and how powerful it was. And it is and like it's absolutely unsurprising that like they totally sold out of all the copies of his book. You know, it's like the book is on back order most places now because this does activate new interest in the words of Langston Hughes in a way that I can only celebrate and champion. And so even if you're not able to see this production, uh, keep an eye out if it comes if, if it comes available. I think it's a really worthy project to undertake in a university or a community or, or a professional setting. 
Um, but if you're at all interested, I would say go get a copy of The Ways of White Folk. It's worth reading. It might take a little bit of adjustment as you get into the sense of the vibe, but just keep on reading because it does not disappoint. And that last story is a doozy. So um, it's a it's a great book, great theatrical adaptation. I'm so glad I took the took the risk and went to go see it and had it was able to grab one of those last seats and uh it is probably will end up being a peak experience for a while so uh that was the ways of white folks as presented by ego poe classic theater theater in the x i neglected to say that it was adapted conceived for the stage by lane savadov but directed by ontaria kim wilson who played cora in cora unashamed and dane eisler and they have another production coming up, which is also an adaptation of a mostly forgotten 1930s um, novel um, uh, called Plum Bun, uh, which is adapting from the story from the novel by Jesse Redmond Fawcett, who is a daughter of Philadelphia. Uh, I may go see it. It's in April, so it's a harder month for me to get out of town. But um, I may try to go see it just to see how it goes, because I, I was intrigued by the work of Ego Poe in collaboration with Theater in the X. And uh, this production uh, definitely signaled that it's worth paying attention to what they're doing. OK, I'll stop. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions, recorded in Princeton, New Jersey, or the unceded ancestral land of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape. Stinky Lulu Says began in the summer of 2016 with a cycle of six exploratory episodes that are still available on SoundCloud. The podcast then dormant for several years until the spring of 2020 when the early days of the COVID-19 shutdown motivated a six-episode emergency reboot. So Stinky Lulu says return as a pandemic-inspired pedagogical pivot, serving as a way to respond to the unfolding crises and also as a teaching resource for courses I taught at Princeton in spring 2020, fall 2020, and spring 2021. A fifth episode offered a halting experiment with two standalone episodes in the early summer of 2021 and 2022, respectively. And here we are in cycle six, which launches into the new year of 2023 with a return to the podcast's roots as a semi-regular theater-going audio diary. You can always have your say about what Stinky Lulu says by letting me know through the usual channels. You can find me easily on most social media outlets at Stinky Lulu, S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. You can also always email me via my Princeton address or at StinkyLulu at gmail.com, or you can subscribe to my hashtag TheaterClick newsletter at Substack, or you can just find links to all these things under the Profe Herrera tab on my University Scholar page. That's bherrera.scholar.princeton.edu or just go to my link tree at Stinky Lulu Naturally, which could be easily accessed in the description for this episode. So until the next time, as you do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds in these evolvingly uncertain times, as we stay fierce in both our artistry and our advocacy, I invite you to join me and my belief that so long as we find a way to keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward, even through this, whatever this is. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says. <laughs>